please do sit down. For several months now, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Towards the end of Ephesians, Paul sets out what is known as a household code, a list of instructions for various members of the standard Roman Empire household. He began with wives and husbands, moved on to children and parents, and we've now reached the third section of the household, household code, quite hard to say, where Paul turns to slaves and masters. This is obviously going to raise the question of the relationship between Christianity and slavery. And we will get onto that subject during the sermon. But the main thing we should fix our attention on is the message of this passage for our own working lives here in New York City in 2023. With that said, let me read our second Bible reading, Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, which is on page 10. Slaves. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will render service as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please do leave your service program open on that page so we can keep looking at the passage during the sermon. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God to teach us as we study his word. Heavenly Father, it says in Psalm 138 that you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And yet we so easily lose sight of your greatness and your word's authority. Help us now, as we listen to the preached word, to restore your name and your word to their rightful position in our lives. For Jesus' sake. Amen. When I was 19 or 20 years old, I heard a talk at a Christian conference that had a mixed impact on my life, both good and bad. It was a talk on Jesus' parable of the ten minas from Luke chapter 19. In the parable, a rich nobleman travels to a distant country and before he leaves, he gives ten of his servants the same sum of money, one mina each. A mina was a very valuable silver coin worth about four months' wages. So in our money, that would be at least $10,000. And he says to those ten servants, put this money to work until I come back. 
put this money to work, meaning try to get more money out of this money, try to make a profit by investing this mina I've given each of you. The nobleman later returns as king of the land. He was appointed king while he was away, and he summons those ten servants to find out how they got on with the mina project. Here's how Jesus puts it in the parable. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. We're only told what happened with three of the ten servants. One has made an additional ten minas. That is good going. Another servant has made an additional five. Also good. And then we're told about a servant who kept his mina hidden away and didn't earn any additional money with it. The first two servants are warmly praised, and the third servant who did nothing with his mina is severely rebuked. Now, sometimes Jesus explains the meaning of his parables, but this one is left unexplained in Luke chapter 19, and that was probably why I found that conference talk so gripping. If I'd ever read the parable parable before, I hadn't understood it. The speaker explained that the nobleman who goes away and returns as king stands for Jesus. And just as the servants in the parable are given valuable treasure and told to get a good return on it, Jesus' disciples are given the treasure of the gospel, the good news of the Christian faith. And we're similarly expected to get a good return on that treasure by putting it to work in the world instead of keeping it to ourselves. The speaker suggested applications such as sharing the gospel with non-Christians where possible, funding missionary work, praying and discipling immature believers. All of those activities and others multiply the gospel that we've each received. Looking back, I don't think the conference speaker said anything wrong, but as I say, his talk had a mixed impact on me, a good, bad impact on me, because I went away eager to turn my mina into ten more, to multiply the gospel that I had received. And that was good. That's a a good takeaway. But I also got it into my head that nothing else really mattered only gospel multiplying activities. Well, that's not what the parable says, and it's not what the conference speaker said either, but that notion got lodged in my head, so for several years afterwards, I lost interest in other responsibilities. I was still a college student, and my grades nosedived from that time on, because in my mistaken thinking, that work didn't really matter. Only gospel multiplication mattered. Well, the reason for telling you that long ago story is because this Bible passage from Ephesians is a powerful counterbalance to the parable of the ten minas. The Bible often works like that. One passage restrains or moderates the way we interpret another passage. One of Anglicanism's 39 articles of religion puts it like this. 
It is not lawful for the church to expound one part of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. I'll read that again. It is not lawful for the church to expound one part of Scripture that it be repugnant to another. Well, if all those years ago I'd I'd paid proper attention to this passage in Ephesians 6, I would have interpreted the parable in Luke 19 more wisely. I wouldn't have shelved my regular responsibilities to run after gospel multiplication opportunities. In brief, the message of today's Bible passage is that our relationship with Jesus intensifies the importance of our regular responsibilities. Our heavenly relationship intensifies our earthly responsibilities. We're going to follow the structure of the passage, looking first at slaves, and then much more briefly, we'll look at masters too. So let's begin with slaves. At the start of verse 5, Paul urges Christian slaves to obey their masters. And he immediately makes it clear in the rest of verse 5 and in verses 6, 7 and 8 that he really means what he's just said. Christian slaves must obey their masters. He's not talking about putting on a show of obedience, obedience light, decaffeinated obedience. No, he means calorific, full-fat, caffeinated obedience. The real deal. He tells slaves in verse 5 that they are to be obedient with fear and trembling. Elsewhere in the Bible, God tells people to tremble at his word, and that doesn't mean literally trembling whenever we pick up the Bible. It means we should treat God's word with great reverence. And that's how slaves should act towards their master's orders, with reverence. We can all immediately agree, I think, that Paul is giving slaves a hard command to obey. Paul then brings the slaves' hearts into view. He says at the end of verse 5 that he wants them to obey their masters with sincerity of your heart. And he underlines that in verse 6, doing the will of God from the heart. He says something similar in verse 7, with good will render service. And just in case any of the slaves are thinking that at least they only have to do all of that when they're actually with their master, Paul says in verse 6, not by way of eye service, as people pleases. One Bible commentary explains that term eye service like this. The sort of service carried out when the masters are watching and not when their backs are turned. So the slaves are to obey with reverence, with goodwill in their hearts, and even when their masters aren't looking. The only qualification that I can find in these verses, the only break on the wheels of obedience, is at the end of verse 6, where Paul says, doing the will of God from the heart. That suggests that if a master commands his slave to do something against God's will, then a Christian slave could and should disobey with a clear conscience. 
Paul doesn't say his teaching only applies if slaves have Christian masters. And he doesn't say his teaching only applies if slaves have kind and compassionate masters. The historical evidence shows that slavery in the Roman Empire could be just as dehumanizing and just as brutal as anything found in pre-Civil War America. One historian named Keith Hopkins speaks of, quote, the viciousness of Roman slavery, the exploitation, cruelty, and mutual hostility. Those things characterized Roman slavery. And yet here we find the Bible telling slaves to pour out their lives in obedience, even when their masters are cruel and sinful men. What right does God have to ask slaves to do that? The answer is God has every right to ask slaves to do that because God himself, in the person of his son Jesus, came down to serve people as a slave. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Christ Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Taking the form of a servant. If you have the ESV translation at home, you might have that version, the ESV, it's quite popular. Take a look at the footnote for that verse, Philippians 2, verse 7. The footnote will tell you that the word translated servant in that verse I've just read is the Greek word doulos, meaning slave. Doulos is the Greek word for slave. There is no category of slave lower than the doulos. And that's how the Bible describes Jesus in Philippians 2, verse 7. We see Jesus doing the work of a slave in John chapter 13, where he washes his disciples' feet for them. That foot washing is a picture of what Jesus was going to do for the disciples on the very next day, when he went to his death on the cross. Jesus' death cleanses us from our sins. It purifies us. Because he took our sins away from us and onto himself, and he was punished for them. Foot washing was slave work, and so was the soul washing that Jesus did when he died on the cross. He could have avoided the cross, but he chose to go to his death there. He went willingly from the heart. And Jesus did not die only for kind and compassionate people. He didn't die only for people who already believed. He died for cruel and sinful people, the likes of the Apostle Paul, who calls himself in another letter in the New Testament, the chief of sinners. As it says in Romans 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, in other words, Christ did slave work for us. Obediently, with sincerity of heart. Teaching in our passage today, 
is teaching that God himself put into practice in the person of his son. He lovingly served as a slave those who did not deserve his slave work. The example of Jesus would surely have encouraged slaves encountering this Bible teaching. And we should notice that Paul wants them to keep Jesus in view while they serve. In verse 5, Paul tells them to obey their masters as to Christ. He wants them to serve as if they were serving Jesus himself. In verse 6, Paul reminds slaves that they are slaves of Christ, which is true of all Christians. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Then in verse 7, Paul repeats that the slave's service should be offered as to the Lord, as though they were serving the Lord Jesus himself. And in verse 8, who is it? who's keeping track of every good thing done by his people, ready to reward each and every act, it's the Lord, the Lord Jesus. I hope we all see how this passage brings the slave's relationship with Jesus into their everyday workplace. Not only because he sets them an example, he did the same thing, but also because he is alive and he knows them and he is taking note of everything they do. It's a heavenly relationship that intensifies earthly responsibilities. We should take note of that promise in verse 8 because it would have fortified Christian slaves as they put Paul's teaching into action. Any good thing they do, Paul tells them, will be received back from the Lord. In the original language, receive back is one word, and elsewhere in the New Testament, it means paid back. Verse 8 is the most precise of all the rewards promises in the whole of the New Testament, unless I'm mistaken. No other promise in the New Testament is as granular as this one. Whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord. You see how granular it is. We're not told what the rewards will be, but it seems they're rewards that will somehow enrich the life to come. So what we find in this passage is that one of the Bible's very hardest commands, everything from verse 5 through verse 7, comes with one of the Bible's most wonderful promises, those words in verse 8. One of the Bible's hardest commands is given alongside one of the Bible's most uplifting promises. Well, until now, we've been putting ourselves into the shoes of first century slaves, but how should we apply these verses to our own lives. We always need to be careful when applying the Bible. We're not slaves, we're free. You can see that slave-free distinction at the end of verse 8. When someone is free to leave their employer, that does change the nature of the relationship. Free workers can 
tell their employer that their current work duties or their current work hours aren't really a good fit for them and they're thinking of moving on to a different job unless some changes can be worked out. That can be a legitimate, godly conversation to have with your employer. And this passage shouldn't stop free Christian workers from negotiating like that with their boss if necessary. But most work days aren't negotiation days. And for modern day employees, the principles in these verses are just as relevant for us as they were for Roman Empire slaves. These workplace instructions teach us that we should honour our employer by doing our work as best we can, whether we're being watched or not, out of sincere goodwill for those with authority over us. And these verses also teach us to be conscious that in serving our earthly employer, we're simultaneously serving our heavenly master. In serving our earthly employer, we are simultaneously serving our heavenly master. We saw that over and over again in these verses. That kind of work, that kind of service, will often be hard. Not as hard as it was for first century slaves, but hard all the same, because ever since the fall, all work has had its thorns and its thistles. So just like the slaves, we'll need to take hold of that astoundingly precise promise in verse 8. At the end of the verse, Paul goes out of his way to apply the promise to free people such as you and me, as well as to slaves. Let's listen again to the promise. Whatever good thing each one does, he will receive this back from the Lord, whether slave or free. It's possible that you've never really fixed your eyes on that verse before. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. It's not a particularly well-known verse, although maybe it should be. Let's fix our eyes on it now. We're not killing time in this world as we wait for Jesus to return. No. Each day presents many opportunities to do good things that will be rewarded by the Lord Jesus. He's keeping track of each and every good thing that we do, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 8. It's a big reason why our heavenly relationship with Jesus, who we will be with forever, intensifies our earthly responsibilities. We'll be with him for all eternity, and according to this verse, he'll reward every good thing we've done. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for this present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. End quote. One of the reasons why Christians who think about the next world do so many good things in this world is because they've taken the promise of verse 8 to heart. They know their heavenly master will reward every good thing they do. They recognize that their heavenly relationship intensifies their earthly responsibilities. 
Well, let's now turn for the last few minutes of the sermon from slaves to masters. Verse 9 says, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I promised earlier that we'd spend some time on the question of Christianity and slavery. Sometimes Christians are understandably, I think, disappointed to find that the Bible doesn't openly and clearly condemn the institution of slavery. The initial reaction of disappointment is understandable, but the more we think about it and meditate on it, the more it makes sense for the Bible not to openly condemn the institution of slavery. The Bible is mainly about salvation, not politics. In the first century, slaves made up 20% of the population of the Roman Empire. One out of every five people was a slave. If the Apostle Paul had clearly condemned the institution of slavery in this letter, the early church would have been even more fiercely persecuted than it was, probably to the point of extinction. Sometimes it is right for Christians to sacrifice their lives for political causes. Sometimes that is right. But sometimes, on the other hand, it's wiser not to sacrifice your life for an unwinnable political cause. The Bible gives us room to discern which of those situations we might be in. The Bible is more concerned with salvation and eternal life than with political causes. And we don't need to be ashamed about that. Slavery may not be openly condemned in this passage, but look closely at verse 9 and you'll see the subtle subversion of slavery going on in that verse. Paul bans Christian masters from threatening their slaves. They're not to do it. Give up threatening, Paul tells Christian masters. They are banned from threatening their slaves. Now that is an incredibly radical thing for Paul to do. My guess is that many slaveholders in the ancient world would have used threats to get slaves to do their jobs. Paul's taking that away from Christian masters. They'll have to find new ways of operating, new ways of encouraging their slaves to do their work. And that will surely mean treating them more like human beings. So verse 9 challenges the dehumanizing aspect of slavery. Takes away threats, threatening from Christian masters. Another amazingly radical thing Paul does in verse 9 is that he tells masters to do for the slaves the same things he's just told the slaves to do for their masters. At the very least, that must mean they should do what it says in verse 7, with goodwill render service. With goodwill render service. Paul is telling the masters to render service to their slaves with goodwill.
It's very understandable that Paul should do that when you consider the theology of the letter to the Ephesians, which speaks about the unity of the church and how God has created one man out of the two, as we saw earlier in the letter. That was talking about Israelites and Gentiles, but it applies to masters and slaves. One man out of the two through their union with Christ. So it makes sense when we bring the message of Ephesians, the theme of Ephesians, through to this passage that Paul would tell masters to do that. But it's still extraordinary to see such a radical thing for him to say. Paul then backs up that extraordinary command, masters do the same things to them with some thought-provoking theology. He says, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. What that means is that the master doesn't sleep on a feather bed while the slave sleeps on a straw pallet because of divine favoritism. That's not the explanation. So the thoughtful Christian master thinks to himself, well, what is the explanation for my feather bed and his straw pallet? And he realizes he's sleeping on the feather bed because he happened to be born into one social caste while the slave was born into another social caste. He and the slave have the same heavenly master who looks upon both of them equally. And so the thoughtful master, with Paul's words, do the same things to them in his brain, starts to think, I have no personal right in God's sight to sleep on a feather bed while my slave sleeps on a straw pallet. Not in Jesus' eyes. And at that point, it's only a matter of time before the master starts dramatically improving his slave's circumstances. You can see the trajectory of verse 9. Verse 9 doesn't condemn the institution of slavery. It's not a call to take political action that would have been self-destructive at that time. Instead, verse 9 uses theology, the Christian principle that all humans are equal in God's sight. Verse 9 uses that theology to turn slavery upside down. Verse 9 doesn't condemn slavery, it subverts it from within. Now, if you yourself are a master, an employer, these words will be particularly relevant for you. They teach you to be servant-hearted towards your employees. And by extension, they have the same message for all of us. If even slave masters are to be servant-hearted towards their slaves, which would have been such an unusual idea in the ancient world. If even slave masters are to be servant-hearted towards their slaves, surely we should be servant-hearted towards all the people in our lives. Whenever we render service to other people with goodwill, that is a small-scale reenactment of the gospel because that is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He rendered service to us 
with goodwill, with love in his heart for us. We can keep that in our minds in the workplace. And as we do, our heavenly relationship with our living Lord will intensify our earthly responsibilities. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you did not leave Christian slaves without an example. You gave them the example of your own Son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus, who himself did slave work for our sake. We praise you and thank you for him and the work he did for us. We owe everything to him. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would keep us conscious of him in the workplace. Would we serve those in authority over us as serving the Lord, knowing we're simultaneously serving the Lord Jesus? Help us, Father, in our work. Help us to be obedient. We pray that you would keep us incentivized by your generous promise that every good deed will be received back through the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.